Okay, hello everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for being here today. Very excited to share with you a conversation I had with my dear friend, Dr. Annie Pindigraf. Annie is a clinical psychologist and a women's mountain bike coach. She's also a action sports athlete herself. Today we talk about a lot of the differences in learning between men and women and the various ways that we can support women in their learning of action sports, which proves to be a very transformational endeavor. The transformational aspects of paragliding and action sports is something I've talked at length about. And it's so it's been so wonderful and validating to have such a versed sparring partner as Annie on this over the last few years, as well as some amazing other women that have been great conversation partners and very earnest on this discussion with me. So today we talk about different things that women can do to support themselves when they're learning action sports, various ways where how women were socially conditioned and how we socially develop and how that affects our fear sensitivity, as well as the benefits of learning from a group of people your own gender, particularly women, and how transformational this really can be. We also get into a little bit of how we can clean up our culture by really fully embracing the things that we need from our groups of people in the same gender as us. So this is an amazing conversation and something I've been really looking forward to sharing with you for a long time. So I'm so happy to present it here. Consider supporting the show on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. That really helps. Link is in the description below. And without further ado, here we go.
Okay, Annie, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Okay, so let's start with why don't you, like why you have clout and authority on this is super obvious to me, but just let's give a uh, uh, hundred second what your history of experiencing, dealing with, and being knowledgeable about these things is. Yeah. Well, so I um, have a doctorate in counseling psychology and after graduate school, after sort of dipping my toe in the industry in multiple ways, I started to get really interested in um, some of the more brain-based experiences that we have in terms of mental wellness and how we can become more introspective based on just kind of in powering ourselves around what happens in our brains when we have certain experiences, especially in relationship to um, our neurodevelopment throughout our childhood and how that is very present in our, in our day-to-day lives. I started mountain biking um, in, later in life around the age of 30 and had a lot of really strong emotional experiences related to that learning process that eventually within the right community turned into a passion what was once a very strong negative reaction turned into a very strong positive reaction. And based on what I know about the brain basis of a lot of our experiences, especially around fear and trauma, and based on my own anecdotal experience, I sort of started to smash the two together and ended up getting a certification in mountain bike coaching and doing a lot of mountain bike coaching where I was able to really integrate some of the neurodevelopmental uh, processes and brain-based interventions to help support people learning to mountain bike, especially women learning to mountain bike, how to do that in a way that managed the fear process to give people the permission to learn a sport that maybe um, was inaccessible to them before because of a fear reaction. And so I've been working on this and developing a a practice that's based in um, sports-based trauma, working individually with folks, as well as working through my mountain bike coaching um, opportunities to work with groups of women around how to really understand what's happening when they're on a mountain bike, understand what happens when they're in a fear-based experience and feel out of control and how to support um, how to support them to, to regain control over that in a way that, taps into um, our amazing, ridiculously complicated, yet also so simple brains. Amazing. I love that. And uh, something that really resonates with me that you said there was that you had initially these very powerful emotional experiences in mountain biking that only in the right community and context were able to transmute into a positive experience that really became a passion that allowed you to stay in the sport and have transformational experiences in the sport. I have had such transformational experiences in paragliding and fear is such a huge part of it. And I know that what you're talking about there is um, not uncommon in women in paragliding. And I think that this conversation, my intention is to help make what wonderful resource you are and your knowledge is available to women in paragliding so that 
they can have as transformational of experience as I have and so many other pilots. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic process to get to observe in hindsight. I can say that it's not as fantastic sometimes in the moment. And so that's why it's so exciting to be able to make these observations and, and have these insights to share with people who are in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when you're in it, you can't outthink it. Mm-hmm. And it's so invalidating sometimes to be told to outthink it. Mm-hmm. And so these are wonderfully rewarding experiences to have if you can, if you can work with that process rather than try and work against it. Right. Okay. Let's start with just some of the basis of, um, I think that some of the relevant topics here are that we're talking about a sport that involves fear and possibly fear injury. We're also talking about individuals doing the sport. So any given person's aversion or affinity to fear, risk, danger, all of these things is such a relevant piece of personal, you know, import here. So I would love to start with the spectrum of fear aversion um, mm-hmm. yeah, and how it's relevant to how we learn and how we interact mm-hmm. with these sports. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when I think about learning a sport, that's going to, where you're going to encounter fear. Um, one of the things that I, what I, that I think about is this concept called fear sensitivity. And you're also talking about fear aversion. And so based on our, our sort of social development, we're, which we can go into later if we want to, but based on our social development, the parts of our brain that are triggered by, and then give us the experience of fear are going to vary from person to person. And they're going to vary from person to person because of the messages that we heard growing up because of our experiences that we had in childhood that then shape both the actual structure of our brain and also the types of messages and cognitive sets that live in our nervous system, that live in these old parts of ourselves that are very much activated and triggered when we're doing physically demanding sports and emotionally demanding sports. And when I say emotionally demanding, that could be both thrilling and fear-based, right? So these, these emotions that this emotional center in our brain is where the fear aspect lives, but it's also where thrill and joy and uh, being overly just all, all of these amazingly positive experiences, emotional experiences live there as well. And so when we're thinking about how that ties in with this learning process is that when we learning and um, learning and memory are stored in the part of our brain called our limbic system, it's also where our fight or flight responses live. It's also where our emotional brain is. And so when we're thinking about being in a setting where we're needing to have, be able to engage in a learning-based process, and then our emotional brain becomes active because we're scared or our fight or flight system becomes active because there's something that triggers the sense of not being safe. It can become very difficult to engage in a reality-based linear learning process. Um, And what triggers that fight or flight response, what triggers that, that emotional response of fear is going to be different for every person. And 
depending on your experiences and other learning environments, depending on your experience in risk-based sports, our risk aversion and fear sensitivity as adults is going to be widely different. So I think that there's a, a opportunity there for both people going through the learning process, as well as potentially people providing that learning process to recognize those differences and be able to adapt certain small things, constructs of their learning approach or their teaching approach in order to understand that our nervous system is what is controlling our experiences in those moments. And that part of ourselves is not accessible through just doing the same old thing over and over again. And often the same old thing over and over again is, is word-based, it's language-based, it's trying to tell people more information, give people more concepts to learn, give people more logic and reason and rationale of why the way they're feeling is incorrect. And I say this, people are doing this in the most benevolent ways. They really mean well. When they're doing this, they're trying to help give the person information because information is power. But in that moment, the part of our brains, which is that neocortex, the front cortex part of our brain, is not super accessible in those moments for people sometimes. It's not a part of our brain that's online. And I cannot go into why that is if that's helpful, but it's not. And so being information-based in our, in our teaching or in our learning styles is um not going to be as productive in those moments. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that when we're trying to learn something that has fear in it, Mm -hmm. we can so often, when we have a fear response, our linear learning systems, the front of our brain is offline and our limbic system, our nervous system the part of us that has emotional responses and fight or flight responses takes over. And the typical response from an instructor in paragliding is going to be some kind of verbal reassurance, extra information, or technique that will effectively bounce off of the person's forehead and be unhelpful Mm -hmm. for them to deal with the fear response that they're having. Exactly. So to expand on that a little bit, yes, that is exactly right. Um, To expand on that a little bit, often what happens is that, so our fight or flight system is often triggered by what we call bottom-up processing, which is sensory information that's coming at us. That's not always um, explicit. Sometimes it's sort of intrinsic. It can be like a smell, a sound. It could be something that someone sees um, our feels and what happens when that system gets triggered is that that oftentimes also triggers similar experiences that we have had that live in our nervous system, live in our old brain. And that could be, um, an experience that we had as a kid when we totally muffed something up and sort of learn something about ourselves that we're just not competent, we're not capable, we're not good enough. And those little cognitive sets sort of become entrenched in our sense of who we are. We don't always associate with sports um, explicitly. 
until that gets triggered through the fear process. So not only in those moments are you dealing with someone who's feeling out of control and feeling scared, but they're also starting to have this cognitive set creep in, which is that they're never going to get it. They're not good enough. They're not capable. They're not competent. And those are not the truth in the moment. None of what you're working with is the truth. The person is perfectly safe. The person is very capable of learning and that, and they're, they're going to be okay. There's no safety going on. The fear process is manageable. And so when an instructor is providing more information to that person, not only are all those things happening, but then because they can't grasp what the person's saying, it's further feeding that message that they're incompetent and incapable, which works, which is why, you know, I've had experienced this before with my own learning of mountain biking, where I had this experience learning and I didn't mountain bike again for years because I just felt like such a failure. And it was not mountain biking that I was failing at. It was this old cognitive set of being a failure that became concretized with my learning process with mountain biking, because I was scared and being given all this information. And that made me feel even worse about not understanding it because Mm. it wasn't that I couldn't understand it. It was at the part of my brain that I needed to be able to understand it was not accessible to me. Hmm. I think this is pretty relatable to most people. I think we've all had some shred of this experience where something we're dealing with in the present is stirring up a as you say, a concretized story that we have of ourselves from our past. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you've seen this in mountain biking. What does this look like for women trying to learn mountain biking? Sure. So the relationship between our limbic system and our physical body is so strong that if someone is in the process of learning mountain biking and something triggers their fear system, something triggers their fight or flight, which gives them an emotional experience of fear because fight or flight is neurological, right? Fight or flight is chemical based it's a chemical reaction and a hormonal reaction in our system that then gives us a message that we make meaning of in our limbic system. That means there's, we should be afraid or we have fear. And so you have the neurochemical reaction and the emotional reaction. And what happens is that all of those things mesh together that result in this person becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy in their learning process. Mm -hmm. Because once they feel fear, all of those cognitive sets start to come into play and their brain that the part of their brain, that a part of our brain that sees patterns, it's called our reticular activating system. It's the part of our brain that when you get a new car, like you get a Toyota Corolla or whatever, and then you look around, you're like, I never noticed before today, how many Toyota Corollas are on the road. You know how that happens? That happens because we're now primed to see those cars, not because there's more cars, that particular car in the street. So the same thing when our, our old brain is really good at detecting risk. Like 
And some people's old brains are even better at it because of what has happened to them individually in their lives, how they were raised, type of language that was used in their childhood. And so when that happens, when you're mountain biking, especially when women are mountain biking because of how often women are off, way more often have higher fear sensitivity than men because of our social emotional development. When that happens, that part of your brain that looks for patterns starts to say, this is, I need to prove that this is scary. So let me find all the evidence that says this is scary. Holy crap, I never noticed that jagged stick over there. I never noticed that there was a rock drop right there that I'm certain to get pulled over by some weird physical force. Like what if all of a sudden this cliff that's 20 feet away is right next to me and I fall off of it? Like our brain is looking for ways to confirm that we're in danger because we're reacting as in a fight or flight moment. And so because of that, we start to see risk everywhere and that fear sensitivity and risk aversion can really skyrocket and take us hostage. And that is all midbrain. That's all limbic system. It's all not super accessible to us through language, through rationale, through logic. Another thing that happens is because our bodies are so tightly wound into our fight or flight system is we get rigid. So we get rigid, which with mountain biking is not ideal. (laughs) I don't think it's an ideal with any sport, but hold on, Most hold on, sports. hold on. I, I just want to, I want to, I want to tie in another piece here that mm-hmm. I didn't reflect back to you, which was that as we grow up as children, the ways that we are treated, the stories that we're given, the instruction that we're given radically alters the physical structure of our brain and sets into motion the way that we will experience fear for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. So the part of that that's relevant here is that the way that we socialize little girls versus the way we socialize little boys and the way we teach them to be averse or be able to handle or ignore fear is the relevant social conditioning that is tying into and manifesting in women trying to learn mountain biking or paragliding. That is the part that, you know, you go to the average school and, you know, the tough guys who um, have stuffed those fears down sufficiently, (laughs) to put it kind of bluntly, can push through and they continue paragliding where as some of the more uh, fear sensitive people and women um, have a really visceral and negative experience in this. Am I putting that together correctly? Yeah, exactly. It's not that it's not that men or in in some cases, women too, with lower fear sensitivities don't experience fear. It's just that when they experience it, it doesn't trigger a montage of other experiences. It's, Mm -hmm a much more fleeting, pure emotional experience that's not connected into fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Okay. An emotional experience without the fight or flight survival experience that then goes along and triggers this whole nervous system reaction. So for example, a lot of, a lot more often girls compared to little boys are told to be careful and told, told to look out for things that are dangerous versus little boys are often told to rip it and give her hell and all the things that what we tell little boys. And 
in addition to the representation of women in extreme sports. So the generation growing up now, I think is every generation is going to have more access to that because there's more and more representation. Mm -hmm. People are becoming more and more aware of how language shapes our brain Mm -hmm. and the language that we hear shapes how we understand our world. And that can be careful around that language and more thoughtful around that language, actually, is what I would say. So the ways that often, especially like my generation, generations before me, when we're little girls, we're, we're being told to be careful, to watch out, to not do things because they're too dangerous. And we start to learn that about fear. We start to learn that about risk is that it's, that's, if something is, is, if you experience fear, it's, there's danger involved with it. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous, which is a whole different thing than fear. Fear is manageable, but when fear is associated with life or death risk, it's not. And so even if we have perfectly like treasured childhoods where we don't have trauma, where we don't have life altering events, where we don't have life, life risking event, we still, women typically are still quite a bit more likely to have developed a higher risk sensitivity because we are being told to watch out for risk as an association with danger that gets coordinated with our fear response. And so that fear sensitivity that leads to a much larger waterfall of emotional response and neurochemical responses in our nervous system doesn't always have, it doesn't always show up in the same way for, for men because it's little boys that's desensitized mm-hmm. earlier on the separation of fear and dangers desensitized earlier on for little boys more often than not. Um, and so that is then it's cumulative because the parts of our brains that pay attention to risk, get more attention, get more blood flow, get more, mm-hmm. um, you know, get, get more physical development. They grow. They, yeah. They grow. What you focus on is what grows. And so little girls are often being kind of filtered into focusing more on risk mm-hmm. as being dangerous and bad and fear is associated in all those things. And the parts of our brain, our amygdala, which is our emotional center, um, our uh, hypothalamus, which is our fight or flight system, those parts of our brains get more attention and are much easier to access for us as adults. They're just ready to go. They're, they're ready and reporting for duty real uh-huh. fast. You know, like they're just, here we are, we're ready. We got you. Put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game, coach. I'm ready. What's, what do we need to be scared of? I'm ready yeah. here. First responder on the scene, 99% okay. of the time, you know, mm-hmm. um, the meaning that we've made out of fear is that it's, that it's, that it's life risking, mm-hmm. not that it's just a normal response to an exciting experience. I'd be curious to know how many men experience fear as exciting versus how many women experience fear as detri- as devastating. As, as life-threatening. As life-threatening. Yeah, interesting. Then you go on top of that and you add in, you know, I, I said this, you have a treasured upbringing. You add in any sort of additional adversity where you're talking about having more genuine life-threatening experiences on top of this fear sensitivity for women, abuse, neglect, um, you know, divorce, um, physical injury or traumatic event, um, even just emotional abuse of having a parent who wasn't very good at giving you messages of safety 
emotional safety. Mm-hmm. Those are all things are all cumulative and they keep that part of the brain that's fear and life threatened, life threatening fight or flight response. They keep those two parts of the brain really working together. Well, charging each other up, making mm-hmm. each other themselves bigger and bigger. And you can see when you look at like functional MRIs of people who've been through these sorts of complicated life experiences as children, their amygdala and their hypothalamus are more robust physically. Um, and I would guess that that is much, much more, um, in de- much more ubiquitous across people than we think, because most people haven't had an fMRI of their limbicus and to see what's up, what's going on in there. It's like not a part of your yearly physical. So, but I would guess that that's, um, much more of an epidemic than, than is realized for sure. Okay. I think that we just laid out a pretty solid understanding of the differences in, to make it quite simple, men and women in Mm -hmm. action sports, mountain biking and paragliding. Mm -hmm. I guess my initial intuition is that this would have radical impact on who is making it through paragliding school and for how long after paragliding school they are pursuing that sport. But I would love to hear your thoughts on the implications of this particular thing that we just laid out. For me, I've been paragliding for quite a while. And I think that my experience with the split in gender in paragliding is somewhere between 88 and 95% men. Mm -hmm. Very most, I would say it's 10 to 12%. That's the very highest I've ever experienced in any given event, but I think it's more, more consistently in the 95% men. So is this, do we have our finger on the pulse of one of the big underlying barriers that women have to having the transformational experiences in paragliding that I've had, or having the transformational experiences in mountain biking that you've had? Yes, I think so. You know, I think some of the more low hanging fruit has been tackled. I think there's been a lot of focus on trying to make cultures more welcoming, learning environments, more welcoming, get the boys club stuff out of there of adventure sports. And I think that, that there's been a lot of good effort at getting at that and which is wonderful. And underneath that or coming in behind that, something that's still not really been addressed is more of these really specific learning styles that happen that are gendered learning styles and that there's, that that's okay. Mm -hmm. It's okay to have gendered learning styles. It's okay to acknowledge that women are are going to learn different and are going to thrive in an environment that acknowledges and honors the differences in their learning styles, especially in an action-based or fear-based environment. Um, Because I think what happens is that a lot of women experience this fear-based system where they then feel out of control, they feel at risk, and they're not able to physically and emotionally tolerate that which then gives reinforces all of these messages of messages of inadequacy. And there's a a pretty big underlying uh, sort of message, even that the women's industry, like women's sports industry has propagated, which is that we have to be the same. 
that we have to get power, that we have to empower, it's girl power, you know, like we have to be able to play with the boys. Mm-hmm. And when we can't, it's devastating. Mm. And we have all of these intrinsic old feelings of inadequacy that get triggered mm. without our even realizing it. And it just becomes an insurmountable, becomes so uncomfortable. And women will quit these, these sports before even really breaking through the learning curve where they're mm-hmm. going to begin to find flow within the sport. Mm-hmm. And because the learning environments just aren't making space for a, a gender specific process, because it's not about empowering us to be the same. It's about utilizing the gifts that we bring to the table to make the learning process more robust for everyone. Mm, I love this. I love this idea that it's such, I I love the acknowledgement that it's such a misconception and a misdirection to try to make men and women the same. And Yeah. uh, yeah, I think that the idea that women in paragliding would come in to compete against the men is a, um, not a healthy thing because I think that the men competing against the men unnecessarily is driving the men crazy. And the men aren't getting out of paragliding what they could get out of paragliding because we're stuck in an overly competitive paradigm. Um, So I think that's, I, I really resonate with that. And I appreciate you saying that. So I guess my question then is what are some of the ways that we can implement a more gendered learning approach or um, different techniques for women to know themselves and for women in paragliding to start spreading awareness of in schools and, um, and even things that they can do themselves. What is this? How do we make this more gendered learning path more robust for women? Sure. So let's start, let's start off by thinking about what women can do and women who are approaching this, a new sport, a new uh, action-based sport where there's going to be fear involved. Uh, I think it's great for women just to acknowledge that this might be part of the process and that, that that's not a value judgment. It's not something that because, because you're going to take specific tactics to manage your fear doesn't mean you're not cut off for the sport because gosh darn it, it's scary. (laughs) And there are going to be times where you're going to need to decide not to do something Mm -hmm. because of the fear response that you can't uncouple from a life-threatening response, potentially because that is the reality of a situation. And that saying no to something is okay. And that saying no to something doesn't mean you've totally failed your learning process within the sport. I think that's something that a lot of times happens with women in learning is that they step away from something and don't do something one day. And that decision is so frustrating to them that their, their entire existence along that sport starts to have, get holes punched in it and they start to lose connection to that sport and eventually will drop out of it. So I think for women that are engaging in this process is to really have a, have a, a practice of gentleness and curiosity mm. around their learning process of really trying to figure out how to engage with the learning process in a way that it's gentle on, on their self-talk and to sort of relate or start to um, 
embed a curiosity practice in the process where rather than going with the immediate reaction of I'm the worst, I'm never going to learn this to be more curious about what the other possibilities are that might make more sense in that moment. The other thing that I think that, mm-hmm. that women need to be focusing on that are going into these learning environments is that when a fear response comes up, it's not logical to, it's not going to be a logical response that helps support them to get out of that. So what I teach, I actually teach women this when we're in, uh, when I am coaching mountain biking, I teach a very short 30 minute, quick bite-sized version of how to understand what's happening and use some small techniques that are not talk related. They're not talk oriented to help shut down the limbic system response and get the neocortex back online because the neocortex is what needs to be active to learn and to quite frankly, to really enjoy like abstract thinking, humor, all those things are in our frontal cortex. They're in our neocortex. So if we're stuck in our fight or flight and our emotional minds, it's a lot harder to enjoy what we're doing because we can experience an intense emotion, but our ability to make sense of it and project that into the future is really limited as well. So some things that we can do to get our nervous system calmed down are not talk-based. Talk-based is not the way that we're going to get our, we can't talk ourselves out of this. And so some things that I, just having some techniques that you can do as a woman learning these things, or as any person that has, that you've acknowledged and proudly represented yourself as a fear sensitive person because there's nothing wrong with being a fear sensitive person that you know you have some tools to manage it and those tools are going to be things that get our limbic system calmed down that flush out that fight or flight response sort of wring it out like a wash rag shut that process down bring our neocortex back online and allow there to be open communication between our neocortex and our midbrain. Because when those things happen, we can make sense of what's happening and with emotional context and project that into the future in a way that's adaptive rather than all of our maladaptive bull heart bull crap coming up from the past and overtaking and hijacking our experiences. So some specific things that, that can do that is I teach bilateral stimulation. I'm an EMDR practitioner in private practice and offline outside of teach, outside of coaching. And EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's one of the evidence-based techniques that still don't really know why fully, but for some reason, bilateral stimulation and specifically um, in EMDR, it was traditionally eye movement back and forth, stimulating bilaterally both sides of your brain is what that means, but have become as a nascent sort of um, trend is also physical tapping back and forth on different sides of your body. For whatever reason, that bilateral stimulation really helps cycle your limbic system through, most likely because it is mimicking REM sleep. And in REM sleep, that's when we sort of, we store our experiences in a way that makes sense, make meaning out of things in REM sleep. And that this bilateral stimulation awakens that process and really is both physically very calming and also very adaptive. It helps take whatever experiences we're, we're having in the moment and store them in a very adaptive way in our nervous system. And so it really gives us a little bit more control over that nervous system response. And so I'm not going to whip out my EMDR tools in the middle of a mountain bike trail, 
what I want to do is teach people how to do this themselves, teach people how to recognize their fear system and then do this themselves. And the easiest way to do that is through either a couple of different breathing techniques or bilateral stimulation through tapping like a butterfly hug, which is where someone would cross their arms over their chest and tap very gently on their shoulders in alternating fashion. And I teach that combined with little exercises that start to get your neocortex back online. Cause as you can start to get your neocortex back online, then that helps you actually realize and make sense of the moment in a rational, logical way. And the more you can get that back online, the quicker you're in a learning space. So I know that was a lot of information, but I think one of the biggest things I would tell women is to understand your own fear response and not be afraid of your fear response, not to have meta fear because it's a natural response. And you have this opportunity through learning in a fear, learning a sport that's fear-based to uncouple fear from a life-threatening situation. And what an amazing opportunity that is. Mm -hmm. But it takes a mindfulness practice. It takes body work. It takes nervous system work to, to do that in the moment because it's, you can set yourself up very mindfully, very logically prior to that in order to be in a mindset when it comes up to be able to get back into that frontal cortex more quickly. Yeah. And it also requires to come back to the first thing you said, it also requires that a woman would allow herself to have additional techniques or practices to supplement her learning in the sport. You have mm -hmm. to have a awareness of your fear response and a compassion for yourself to allow yourself to either step away and not do it that day or to allow yourself to learn these new techniques that you're talking about. You have to have a curiosity and a grace, a compassion with yourself. And then you're talking about these limbic system hacks that are not talk-based, that are proven ways to bring your neocortex back online and have your flight or your fight or flight response diminished as quickly as possible, which I think it's important also noting that the fight or flight response usually doesn't go away within about 25 minutes, right? Correct. Okay. So it's something that uh, is also helpful to know that if you have some kind of scary mountain bike crash, you can do the butterfly tapping, but you also have to kind of have your timer, your egg timer set that you're like, okay, like I could expect that for the next half an hour, I'm going to be kind of like frazzled from that event. Yeah. It's, it's, they're going to be things that you can do to start to get your neocortex back online. And you're going to continue to have some heightened emotional experiences related to fear uh -huh. until that until the actual neurochemical process of your HPA axis flushes through your system. Okay. And yeah. to talk about just the butterfly hug for just a moment, it's crossing your arms across yes. your chest so yes. that your, your right hand is resting on your left, the front of your left shoulder and your left on your, the front of your right shoulder. And you just alternate taps back and forth deliberately. You're not like tapping rhythmically. You're alternating taps back and forth and you're kind of presencing the sensation on either side, right? Correct. And they're just going back and forth, kind of, yes. I, I imagine that like bringing an awareness of your breath and the sensation of the taps is the kind of the calming mindset that brings this uh, into a fruitful place, right? It is. And what I encourage people to do is do an initial set of butterfly taps, just focusing on the breath, focusing on the sensation of the taps, focusing on what comes up, 
and just noticing that you, it's a physical sensation that people typically notice kind of move through their body. Mm-hmm. And then as they move through a, an initial sort of round of taps of, you know, counting, sometimes people like to count them because that sort of starts to bring your neocortex back online too. And then what I like to do, because that's lighting up your limbic system in a way that's adaptive, right? It's like bringing out the fight or flight response, starting to sort of calm that system down. What next can occur is by then giving your memory cortex, your memory system, something to adapt to, because the negative images are in cognitive sets and self core beliefs, negative core beliefs are going to be triggered. It just is a part of how our nervous system works. And so in order to, we want to give our, our body a different truth to ground in, in that moment, because the old stuff is what is going to be the strongest message, which isn't actually the truth. Yeah. It's maladaptive. It's old. It's a story. It's not the truth of what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And so what is super corrective and what I have seen work really well with folks learning to mountain bike is giving the body another truth to ground in, in the moment, giving it that corrective experience in the moment, rather than walking away from a fear-based experience with a degraded sense of self-worth, you walk away from a fear-based experience with a curiosity, with a sense of efficacy, with a sense of maybe not today, but tomorrow is going to be great. If not tomorrow, at some point it will be great. And so I have women that are learning to mountain bike actually choose. So with mountain biking and coaching, we have about five to six really basic skills that we teach. And we teach these when women are brand new and we continue to teach them as people advance and become a, a more, more prominent riders where they can actually just take the same basic skills and apply them in different ways. The same basic skills get you off of a 30 foot table as help you pump down a, you know, 10 degree pitch on a, on a mountain bike trail. It's this, some of the same basic skills. So one of the things I help women with when they're learning this is I have them choose a skill that they have learned a basic skill and observe themselves in their mind, doing that skill very well and putting themselves on a specific feature, doing that skill. So body bike separation going through using pressure control on a specific like high angle berm, like, or how they would like to picture themselves perfectly using like pressure control and body bike separation on a drop and to image, imagine themselves, get that image of themselves super clear in their head. I even have them put, put yourself in the, your favorite mountain biking outfit, give it detail. Like what shorts are you wearing? What's your helmet look like? And give that image as much detail as possible. And then ground yourself on that image using those butterfly taps really briefly while you're on trail or in the learning environment, wherever you are, where you're trying to attend to some information, give yourself that moment to ground in that image that gives your body a new truth to connect to and will not be an instant match. You know, it won't be an instant process that happens overnight with one experience. But if you can start to pattern yourself that way, every time you experience fear in relationship to your sport, eventually the fear process gets connected to efficacy, not to, to risk. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that when we have this fear response, it typically just reiterates the old story that we are incapable and idiots. 
the butterfly tap can help us reignite our neocortex, but it's absolutely critical that as we do that, we have a new story that we're patterning into ourselves. Correct. That new story, you are grounding in women in mountain biking by having them focus on a single skill that they are working on, learning, and imagine themselves doing it really well while doing this butterfly tap so that the butterfly tap itself becomes patterned in their experience as when I do this, I am bringing myself back into learning, into curiosity, into compassion, into groundedness. And I am going away from the story that I am an idiot, that I am incapable and that I am not worthy. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It's beautiful. I think that I can imagine, I can imagine ways that we could be teaching women how to do the butterfly taps and to work through their fear responses in paragliding and focus on certain techniques that we're talking about. And in general, I think this, what you've just laid out, this ability to use a sport to reprogram the deepest, most negative stories about ourselves into ones that tell us that we're worthy and that we are empowered is as transformational of a process that any activity could provide. Yeah, absolutely. I am a very risk insensitive man, but the idea that I could be reprogramming my psyche through paragliding to reassure myself that I'm worthy and that I am enough um, is deeply resonant with me. Yeah. yeah. So I think this does um, amazing things for the entire population of action sports enthusiasts from mountain bikers to paragliders, both male and female. And I also love what you said about knowing yourself and knowing that you're going to need an additional tool and being okay with that. That's a very beautiful thing. And just a small tangent, I love this bilateral stimulation and the idea that bilateral stimulation and EMDR therapy is so effective. You said that it's not super obvious why this works in humans. And one reason that it might work is because it mimics REM sleep, which is a deeply processing process for us. And I recently listened to Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist, talk about why EMDR works. And he actually thinks that it's because in our flight response, when you actually run away from things, you are passing things in your visual cortex and just the experience of walking or running through the woods, um, your eyes shift back and forth, left and right. And the feeling of running away is therapeutic and it mm. is relieving. Mm -hmm. 
So that was the, that was my. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, because Fra- you might not know this. I don't know if he went into this, but Francis Shapiro, the woman who found, who started, who invented EMDR, started the whole theory because she was walking and looking at stuff as she walked. She was looking at, uh-huh. I remember now the story of what she was looking at, but she was looking at different things as she was walking. I think she was in, was when she was in her doctoral program. And she just noticed this like sense of activation that she started to have these, but they call it spontaneous insights. What's called an EMDR have, have these spontaneous insights and notice that that eye movement that she was experiencing as she was walking or going somewhere. I can't remember if she, what she was doing, but she, she just noticed that in her own environment, which is interesting uh-huh. to think about it. And this person's description of potentially why it's efficacious is because it's just mimicking what our eyes are doing as we're, as we are moving through an environment where, that we're attempting to attend to. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really this just like the whole process is really interesting. I think it's awesome to as much as we can integrate into our current learning and wellness and um, sort of treatment based environments, whether that's education or it's mental health treatment or whatever it is, is that we can just acknowledge that talking is not the way to do a lot of this work (laughs) Um, and that the and that these these processes that acknowledge the role of the brain in non-linguistic, paralinguistic, and just implicit ways, I think uh-huh. is really powerful. So, because yeah. our brains are old, they're so old. Yeah, they're so complex. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's a very nice little n- psychology nerd tangent that we just I love it. on. Thank and- you. I know you love it. You are a psychology nerd and so am I, but yeah. Um, and I've, I backed myself off the edge of crying there as we just put our finger right on the pulse of how transformational paragliding or learning in action sports or learning things can be. If we're rewriting the story of our own enoughness through the sports, I just, that's fucking epic. That's so epic. Um, I do want to talk about, I'm very interested in how I could possibly help people. And I think that what we've been talking about so far is how people can help themselves, how women can know themselves and implement tools in their own learning, how instructors could hypothetically be aware of these things and use a lot less verbal and linear instruction to um acknowledge a limbic system response and you know just even knowing the time frame that that takes and what happens all of those things are really super helpful but i'm curious what you've experienced in mountain biking with women's groups you have become a mountain bike instructor and you teach women i think that there's a i can imagine women having a comfort and a community in a all women's mountain bike community in a way that is unlikely to be replicated with a male instructor or a co-ed class. What is your experience and your intuition of the power and importance of having women teach women and women supporting women in a community of action sports? Yeah, sure. So 
specifically kind of that that second question around the significance of women teaching women and just having female connection in the sport. For me, what comes up is thinking about within the wrong environment, what is a hindrance in the right environment is a gift. So in a traditional learning environment that's, that is lack sensitivity to different learning process, fear sensitivity and risk aversion is seen as a hindrance and an overly emotional connection to fear, a catastrophizing relationship to fear almost is, is developed in a way that becomes a hindrance. And when in the right setting, in the right environment, in the, in a more um, congruous environment, that can become a gift because it provides a, a very rich emotional, especially social emotional connection for the learning environment. It doesn't, it doesn't provide a platform where women have to prove themselves in a way that gets them using a language that doesn't, that's the wrong language, right? They're trying to, they're trying to, to assimilate information based on a sense of who they are that's inauthentic because they're trying to be the same as men who are learning that are using an entirely different part of their brain, an entirely different knowledge set in terms of who they are, self-knowledge, self-talk, all that stuff. So in the right context, I think that this, the emotional landscape that women provide is very, um, it's very healing for people. And it's not about being exclusive in the process. It's the opposite, actually. It's being really inclusive because the women learning together validates the pretty intense process that can happen that we have that we've conditioned ourselves to with fear or have had conditioned upon us with fear. The process is validating, which takes that what happens when it's not validating is it is that that triggering response, right? That I talked about earlier of where all these negative core beliefs and cognitive sets just started like get really rampant and present. And when the fear process is validated, then it keeps those negative core beliefs from becoming so hungry and so present in the moment. It gives us a, a different opportunity to start writing that new narrative. And so that's why I think women learning with women is so important is because it allows people to stay engaged through that process to get through that and to the other side, to be able to turn that intense negative fear reaction into a, an intense positive reaction. Um, and that sense of efficacy that comes in that, even if the maneuver was not completed, it's that the feature wasn't done in whatever way they were trying to learn it, even if it wasn't the actual content wasn't a success, quote unquote, a success, the experience is stored as a success mm -hmm. because the tendency for women to have this shared experience implicitly is so high. And for it's just a really high likelihood that we're sharing this experience together. And for a long time, before I developed this concept that I started introducing my mountain biking, I was coaching and still coaching for when all women's clinics and the women's clinics had this really explicit demonstration of inclusivity that was put forth at the beginning of the weekend. That was 
real, very, very remarkable in my experience of just like opening up the ability to be curious and comfortable with ourselves outside of mountain biking. Mm-hmm. It was really unique. And it seemed like a little like oh, touchy feely, but what it was doing without explicitly acknowledging was setting a tone of emotional safety so that we can use all of these amazing emotional gifts that we typically have had because of our, our social emotional development. The same reason we're severe sensitive is the reason we're really good at getting each other to laugh and learn together and support one another and, and find a comfort and a curiosity with all of our extremes within a sport. And unfortunately the parts of fear sensitivity and risk aversion that result in men typically being more gung-ho about trying scary things also means there's a less rich emotional culture in those learning environments. And so the, the concept that you're just going to smash those two things together and they're going to even out, I think is a little ludicrous. (laughs) I think it just takes so much intention to see that women can greatly benefit from establishing that emotional safety and connection and support and getting through a certain process with their sport and then start to integrate that emotional fabric into a multi-mixed gendered environment. That's been my process is just getting through a certain threshold in my learning experience with women and then being able to gently with curiosity and with like great passion, be able to start to provide my own emotional experiences in a larger context, because I think that that presence of that in all sport is so healing and so valuable. And it doesn't show up when you just mix men and women women together without Mm -hmm. intention. In fact, like it ends up, women end up projecting themselves in a much different way And men sort of project themselves in this different way. We both sort of regress to this weird Mm -hmm. mean where women are Mm -hmm. trying to be a little bit more masculine and men are trying to be a little bit more sensitive and it just is a mess. Oh my God. And so having having more authentic connection with your own learning process, your own relationship to the sport, your own comfort with the sport, it's so much easier to do that with people that have shared experiences Mm -hmm. and then having your comfort with your foundation to go in to start to mix those experiences. How beautiful. It's a very beautiful thing. And so, and so I think that's why, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it's important to have women in sports. There's Mm -hmm. so many reasons there's like, no, duh. Uh, But I think that for me is everyone that I'm really passionate about because I think women offer such a rich emotional environment that can be so healing, but that is, seen as a negative thing initially, and that women often aren't comfortable with their emotional response, responsivity in fear-based sports because they associate their emotional responsivity with feeling out of control. And so as they learn together to reform and reshape those narratives, they can have a, a much more levity with their emotional intensity that, which seems like a little oxymoronic to have levity with emotional intensity, but you can, you can be more playful with it. (laughs) And to provide that experience to men, that's, I mean, I think that sounds wonderful. (laughs) Men so need that. Yeah. And there's Um, so much about being playful and, and 
curious with fear that men can provide women, but you're not going to provide it until they've had the process to get into the sport with emotional safety. Okay. To reflect that amazing tirade back to you. I hear that women learning from women and having female community in action sports is for one so important because they can have a shared experience and they can more readily drop into a space of curiosity and compassion for their selves as they are, as they have these intense emotional responses, as they work through these old narratives that are tied to them. And as they reprogram them, that is uh, very facilitated by having a female community. Also, I hear that that experience, the efficacy of the female community for the individual females learning and growing and, and participating inside the community is foundationally set in the context of emotional safety within the group. Mm-hmm which is a profound realization that is a profound insight. It makes perfect sense to me that if Annie was coaching a weekend mountain bike clinic that she opened up with on Friday afternoon and brought everyone into the group into a practice of curiosity, openness, and loving compassion for themselves and the other women, that you would set a culture in the in the learning that would allow, facilitate, and enrich the soil from which the learning will actually grow. So much of what you've said today, I've had a response of like, oh my God, men need that so much too. Like mm-hmm. many, that's so much too. Like if we could contextualize our paragliding in a nest of brotherhood, support, emotional safety, um, what an incredible radical change in the culture we would experience. I also love what you're saying about how when women have a healthy female community from which they can establish safety, competence, and begin to rewrite these old narratives of incompetence and idiocracy into ones where they tie their learning and their, um, they tie their learning to the new story of their adequacy and their worthiness and their competence that that is the place from which a co-ed culture can be really, really richly rewarding for people of both sexes. Mm -hmm. My intuition was that men, if men had paragliding fulfilling them in their needs for brotherhood and their connection to men in the way that I think it's possible, that would set paragliding up 
that would be the male side of setting the foundation for this to be the, the overlapping co-ed community to be really super healthy, really enriching for both sexes. So I think that this is um, your insights today are both um, amazingly insightful as to the, as to women, but I think they're incredibly practical for men. Mm -hmm. They're -hmm. incredibly practical for men as well. Because I think that what we're alluding to here is that we are lacking community and we're lacking the depth and the support and the practice of community on both sides of the gender relation here in these sports. I think that all too often the men in paragliding frivolously chase fulfillment without finding it very successfully. They want paragliding to fill them up and it is constantly a fleeting experience followed by you know, them landing out, calling themselves an idiot and wanting to quit. And then they have to build up their courage to try again. And then depending on how it goes, they're either going to be a stupid cotton headed ninny muggins or, <laughs> you know, it's like the, yeah. the, the, what you're bringing up of, of our, of our sports being the drama in which we enact these stories of our own adequacy. Whoa, dude. Whoa. Yeah. That's a deep, that's a fucking deep, deep thread there. It's a deep thread and it's a beautiful and incredibly insightful thing to want to have our finger on the pulse of. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really can be. Okay, give me your, your closing thoughts and your encouragements for women in paragliding and mountain biking. What is your What is your call to action? What is your encouragement? This could be for women specifically. It could also be for men. What is, let's, um, sure. I want you to, I want you to be able to end with something that Mike drops and then I'll set off the fireworks in the zoom room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I would say that what I would leave people with is if you are a woman or you love someone who is or even know someone who is, (laughs) is that the fear-based sports, action-based sports are better with us in it. Mm -hmm. They are better with us in it because we have an immense emotional capacity to experience these sports very richly. Mm -hmm. That will not happen automatically. That will not happen without work. And the work that goes into doing that is valuable and it's important and it's very accessible. It's very doable. It doesn't require retaining a psychotherapist in order to rewire your relationship to fear within within a sport. And by doing that, by allowing yourself to cultivate a mindfulness-based practice, that rewires your relationship to fear. It really gives you the permission to learn something with a group of women, with a connection to a community that is going to potentially be able to spark a passion in you that you didn't know you or wouldn't allow yourself to have. And as someone who maybe doesn't identify as a woman or has a different relationship with fear, we all have 
emotional-based centers in our brain. We all have the capacity to access those. And we all have the capacity to increase our curiosity around how we experience ourselves in a sport. And so we can all learn language, different language of how to attend to our learning process that reduces the likelihood of triggering a life or death fear-based response. But once that process is triggered, we also have the capacity to make space for that reconnection and rewriting of that story. We can all play a role in that. And when we're learning and teaching sports by giving ourselves the permission and being aware that that is an opportunity rather than a failure. And that's probably what I would say in closing. In closing. And I just want to add your own huge insight that the transformational power of action sports can be a facilitation of rewriting your deepest stories about yourself from ones of inadequacy to ones of worthiness and competence. Absolutely. That's what I'm taking away from this conversation that nearly made me cry and that I want to integrate into my own life. And that's why I've been thinking for so long about how we can make our sports more accessible to people having that kind of transformational experience. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mic drop, Annie. Um, I know that, are you planning to be the keynote speaker at the Santa Barbara All Ladies Fly-In in October? Yes, sir. I am. I will be there. Great. Well, ladies can find you there. And you're getting famous on my YouTube channel. So thanks so much for being here. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. It's an honor and just such a privilege to just get my brain picked by you for (laughs) however long. It's just a total treat. So thank you. Okay. Love you. Thank you. Go hang up. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. You guys, I hope that was helpful and insightful. I'm so happy to share Annie's knowledge and wisdom and perspective with you here. Um, She is going to be the keynote speaker at the Santa Barbara All Ladies Fly-In, October 22nd. So if you're a lady and looking to check that out, check out SBSA uh, for more information on that. Also, consider supporting this podcast and this YouTube channel on Patreon. That's for as little as $5 a month. My top tier patrons are getting one-on-one coaching calls as well as free area in the air paragliding gear. So consider supporting me there. Thanks so much for listening. Please let me know your comments or your questions. I would love to know how this landed for you. So please feel free to reach out whether in the comments section or at area in the air at gmail.com. Thank you so much. See you on the next episode.